Looking at 1 Peter chapter 2, the big number 2, and then the smaller numbers are the verse numbers, and we'll begin right at verse 1. This is what Holy Scripture says. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you pray with me quickly? Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We pray that you'd give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to respond, and that Holy Spirit of God, you would lead us in all truth this morning. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you were to move to Buffalo tomorrow and you ordered chicken wings at Duff's and you ordered your wings with ranch dressing, you'd be turned down, laughed at, and maybe, maybe even run out of the restaurant because when you're in Buffalo, living in Buffalo, chicken wings are only served with blue cheese. If you were to move to Buffalo tomorrow and you went into public wearing a New England Patriots jersey or anything from Boston for that matter, you would quickly find yourself perhaps in an altercation with angry locals because Buffalonians detest all things relating to Boston sports. If you were to move to Buffalo tomorrow and you went to a restaurant, you were out in public somewhere and you asked someone where the washroom was, you'd be met with a puzzled look because in Buffalo, washrooms are called bathrooms. When you are living as a foreigner, you need to know how to navigate the culture that you're in. You need to know what's appropriate. You need to know what to do and what not to do. And do you know what helps you live as a foreigner in a foreign land? 
a how-to guide, a manual, if you will. As a foreigner, a how-to guide helps you thrive in a place and in a land and in a culture that is not your own. Well, 1 Peter, the book of 1 Peter is a how-to guide for Christians living as exiles. That's living in a land and a country that is not our own. Peter writes in 1 Peter 1.1, you can look there briefly, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So he's writing to a group of Christians scattered throughout Asia Minor, which is modern-day Turkey, and he calls them, if you caught it, he calls them elect exiles. Now, an exile refers to a temporary resident living in a foreign place. So as Christians, we are strangers living in a foreign land. This isn't our home. And then if you bounce back up to 1 Peter 2, 9 through 10, as Steve read in the paragraph before our passage, Peter refers to Christians as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. Peter says you were once not a people, but now you are God's people. You are a holy nation living as pilgrims in a land that is not your own. It's important to really understand this context because Peter is speaking to persecuted Christians. They're disconnected, they're ostracized, they're marginalized from the broader society and culture. And if you were to glance through the book of Peter, Peter tells us that the Christians here, they are grieved by various fiery trials. They're rejected by men and they're suffering because of what they believe. So they're in a culture and society that doesn't care about them, and they're in a culture and society that doesn't share the values that they have. It was tough slugging for those Christians, and they needed encouragement. They needed a reminder of who they were in Christ, and they needed a reminder to run the race well as an exile. And the same is true for us today. As Pastor Steve prayed earlier, it is 2023. All of you, all of us, we woke up this morning to a brand new year. And while it's a brand new year, a brand new day, you're still living as an exile in a foreign land. That reality has not changed. The good news is, as we're going to see here today, this morning, in 1 Peter 2, 11 through 12, Peter gives you two goals two habits that will help you navigate all the twists and turns and trials that come with living as an exile in this foreign world. With the help of the Holy Spirit who indwells you, Christians, with the help of the Holy Spirit, Peter exhorts you to leave your lusts and cling to virtue. Leave your lusts and cling to virtue or kill the flesh and do good deeds. If you strive to practice these two habits all year long, you will have done a good thing. If you strive to practice these two habits to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, you won't merely, you won't merely survive this year, but you will thrive living as a faithful exile. So question for you on the first day, New Year's Day, 
first day of 2023 looking ahead. Your slate is clean. You've got a fresh start. <clears throat> How are you going to live 2023? How are you going to live in this year that's in front of you? If you are going to live as a faithful exile, the first thing you have to do, Peter says, is leave your lusts. Leave your lusts because your lusts are out to kill you. Look at verse 11. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So if you caught it, Peter refers to them as the beloved. Beloved. That's someone deeply loved, like a mom fawning over their newborn son or a groom enthralled with his bride on his wedding day. Peter describes both God's love for them and his own love for them as an apostle. These are people who are loved in a special and unique way. Let me just pause here to remind you that God loves you, Christian. That's a simple truth, but if you're anything like me, that's a truth that we, we are prone to forget. But you are his beloved. You are in Christ deeply loved by God. Peter goes on, as ones who are loved by God in a special and unique way, I, Peter, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh. Peter says, I urge you to urges uh, to implore or to appeal strongly. And Peter is pleading with his listeners. And as he pleads with them, he pleads with them as sojourners and exiles. That's really interesting language. That's language that's distinct and unique. We've already seen that he refers to them as elect exiles, but now he calls them sojourners and exiles. Why? Peter is emphasizing that this world, as they know it, is not their home. It's not their final destination. A sojourner is a person who lives in a place temporarily. To, sorg- to sojourn is to pass through. You would say, as a, as a Christian living in spiritual exile, you would say, I am sojourning through Toronto. An exile... An exile is a person who has been removed from his own country of origin, someone who has been displaced. Since 2011, close to 7 million Syrians have been displaced from their country due to the Syrian civil war. That's 7 million people living in a land that is not their own home, not their own place of origin. And so Peter takes these two terms, and he's meaning for us to see them together, Christians, You are sojourners and strangers, sojourners and exiles. We're strangers and aliens. Our citizenship doesn't belong to this earthly realm. Our citizenship belongs elsewhere. With these two words, Peter defines for us how we as Christians are to relate to the world around us. This is the controlling concept for how God wants you to understand how you fit into the broader culture and society. See, we're not primarily Canadian citizens or American or Nigerian citizens. We as Christians are citizens of another kingdom, an eternal kingdom, which means that our true citizenship as the people of God who belong to the kingdom of God informs how we live here on this earth. 
eternal citizenship informs our temporary citizenship. And you and I, we got to be really, really careful that we don't get those two things switched and flopped and backwards and allow our earthly citizenship to inform our heavenly citizenship. As Christians, our allegiance is to King Jesus, and our allegiance to Jesus informs everything, how we think, how we act, how we respond to the world around us. Do you guys remember the phrase, like, rose-colored glasses? So you'd use that, you know, he, he sees her through rose-colored glasses. Do you remember that? Well, we as Christians, we need to see everything through gospel-colored glasses, through exile-colored glasses, including how you fit within this temporary world. So Peter appeals to the same language that Abraham uses in Genesis 23 when Sarah dies, And Abraham looks to those around him for a gravesite to bury his wife. He says, I am a sojourner and foreigner among you. It's Genesis 23, 4. Abraham saw himself as one who is just passing through on his way to the promised land. The author of Hebrews in chapter 11, he tells us that the patriarchs who trusted God and had faith in him and what was to come acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on this earth. Loved ones, as Christians, we come from a long spiritual lineage of people who don't fit in, and we don't fit in because this is not our eternal kingdom. Our, Our citizenship belongs to another kingdom. The apostle Paul says in Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Peter says, I urge you, I urge you as pilgrims, and I urge you as those who don't belong to this earth, I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. To abstain means to refrain from or to stop doing something or or to refrain yourself from doing something. So Peter says, refrain yourself, abstain from the passions of the flesh. Now there are good passions And there are bad passions, right? You can be passionate about the Lord. You can be passionate about loving your friends, passionate about food, passionate about the Buffalo Bills, whatever sports team you might be passionate about. And those are all good things. But then you you can have bad passions. And Peter refers to to these passions as passions of the flesh. What are passions of the flesh? Well, a passion is is an emotion. It's a strong feeling. And whatever these passions may be, Peter makes it clear throughout his letter that the passions of the flesh are associated with the way that these Christians lived previously. If you look back at chapter 1, verse 14, look there with me briefly. He says this, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. A.K.A. don't be conformed to the passions of your former life. Don't live the way you used to live. You need to abstain from these fleshly things. You need to flee. Flee from and abstain from what? Well, I think passions of the flesh, it's not just limited to sexual lusts or sexual sins, though that's certainly included. If we zoom back out and look at the rest of the letter, Peter has several exhortations for us. Look at 1 Peter 2.1. We've read this already, but Peter says, So put away all malice 
and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. So even these social sins can be seen as passions of the flesh. And then if you look ahead to 1 Peter 4.2, Peter says this, Live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. So these two, again, are passions of the flesh, and Peter calls us to renounce these things, to, to flee from these things, to flee from these things. All of these things that we participated in, we participated in when we were still attached to this world. So what Peter is doing, Peter is describing an old way of living, and he's telling us to put off that old self. He associates all the passions of the flesh with the old sinful way of living prior to coming to Christ. In effect, he says, don't do what the Gentiles do. Don't do what non-Christians do. Why? Because they don't know God. Paul says something really similar here in 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 to 5. He says this, for this is the will of God. Your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. So don't live like non-Christians. Don't live like non-Christians who don't know God. Loved ones, for those of you today who are in Christ, for those of you who belong to Jesus, you rightly know God, and you are known by Him. So you ought to live like you know Him. So Peter would tell us that all of the passions of the flesh, these are all things that are contrary to the way of God. Passions of the flesh are all things that are opposite of His will. A passion of the flesh is any uncurbed, unholy impulse, any unrestrained indulgence or desire. And as a reminder, who's he, who's he writing to? He's writing to Christians. So to state the obvious here, this verse implies that we as Christians, we can be given over to any unholy impulses. We could be living in sin. But on the flip side, on the really encouraging side, this verse also implies that you and I in Christ with the help of the Holy Spirit, we can control and even nurture our passions. So let me ask you, what unrestrained, unholy passions or impulses are you holding on to? Are you dabbling with sexual fornication? Do you salivate at the opportunity to gossip or talk about others? Are you given over to any unbridled anxiety or worry? Are you elevating success over obedience? Friends, in all of these different ways, these are all passions of the flesh. And all of these are sins associated with your, with your life prior to coming to Jesus. And in love, I want to remind you today that these things, these passions of the flesh, stand in opposition to your new identity as ones belonging to Jesus and to his kingdom. 
And as Christians, as Christian exiles on this earth, these passions of the flesh are not appropriate for someone who belongs to a heavenly homeland. With the help of God and with the help of the Holy Spirit who indwells you, Peter calls you to abstain from these things. You must abstain from the passions of the flesh. You must abstain and have self-control and rule over these impulses. Proverbs 25, 28 says this, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. That's such a good picture. A city broken into and left without walls. That's a picture of a, a city that is utterly defenseless. But Peter doesn't stop there. He goes on. Peter says, you need to abstain from your lusts because your lusts, your fleshly passions, are out to kill you. Look at the verse. Abstain from the passions of the flesh, flesh, which wage war against your soul. Now, you and I, we can't always see it, but there is a war raging all around you. There is a war raging for your soul. Your passions are warring against you. The Greek word there, this is really interesting, the Greek word behind our English wage war can be literally translated as to serve as a soldier. One pastor puts it this way, this is really helpful. The human passions are said to be serving as soldiers against your soul. They are fighting men and they intend to keep you tethered here to this earth. So Peter says, see, you got to see your fleshly passions as soldiers constantly trying to kill you, constantly trying to destroy your soul. This is a really straightforward warning for us that if, if, if we allow sinful desires to triumph, if we allow sinful desires to linger or to stick around, they will ultimately destroy you. And even further, sin doesn't just destroy you, but sin destroys all of those around you. James 4.4 4 is really helpful here. James says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? So any unchecked sin, any bridle, unbridled passions of the flesh, they don't just affect you. They also affect the people around you. It doesn't just destroy your soul. It destroys and affects the relationships and the people around you. And so for the sake of your own soul and for the sake of your brothers and sisters in Christ and the people and the relationships that you have around you, you need to leave your lusts. Now, what does that entail? What does it look like to leave your lusts? Well, it includes two things. First, it includes you actively killing your passions. Secondly, it includes replacing your fleshly passions with virtue. Let's look at that first bit, what it means to kill your fleshly passions here. The Puritan John Owen famously said, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That's so good. Be killing sin or sin will be killing you. That means you got to fight back. you got to mortify the flesh, as Owen calls it. So I think these are real fighting words. This is a battle cry. And guess what? God has given you, as a Christian, he has given you the ability to kill sin. And even further, this this isn't just something that you do in your own strength. God promises to help you. He says, I will help you. The Apostle Paul says this in Romans 8, for if you live according to the flesh, 
you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. That's you working and the Spirit helping. Through the help of the Holy Spirit, if you look to him for help, you can put to death the passions of the flesh. Now, I'm going to be real with you. This is, this is hard work. This is, this is tough, hard work that, that is daily work for the believer. This takes seeing sin, identifying it, rightly understanding what sin is, and then bringing it to the Lord, confessing it to him, repenting, it, repenting of it before him, and then one step further, actually asking God to change your heart and your mind, asking God to change you. David prays in Psalm 51 after he commits adultery with Bathsheba and murder. He says this, Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. So David confesses his sin, but then he asks God to change him. God, change my heart. Renew my mind. Renew a right spirit within me. This is a really good prayer, I think. It's a prayer that we can pray. This is a kind of prayer that helps us to leave our lusts. This is a kind of prayer that, that invites and asks God to come into our hearts and minds and put to death our flesh. I know I'm going to sound like a broken record here. First day of 2023, looking ahead. Resolve this year Resolve to make this year a prayerful year. Resolve to be a praying Christian. Resolve this year to be a Christian who reads the Bible. There's no huge secret sauce here to putting, putting, uh, putting sin to death in your life. God gives us and, and blesses us with common and normal means of graces. The more you pray, the more God tunes your heart to do his will. The more you get into the Bible, the more the Bible gets into you. And again, this is going to take some holy sweat, some holy work. I want you to imagine for a moment, imagine buying a new property, and you're eager to build a house, but on the property, the property's teeming with all kinds of trees, bushes, and uh, weeds. Again, you're eager to build, so what do you have to do? Well, you have to, you have to clear out those trees. You've got to tear those trees down. Then you've got to tear out the bushes. And then you have to continually work at beating back those weeds if you want to maintain a beautiful property. And the same is true with your own spiritual growth. You have to beat back those lusts and rule over those passions. And sometimes, really most times, this is a daily work. This is something that takes effort but loved ones, this is what God calls us to as Christians. And you know what else? One step further, I think as Christians, this should be a joyful work for us because we want to reflect God and his kingdom. Now, I should be uh, clear about something. Let me clarify. Leaving your lusts, leaving your lusts doesn't make you a Christian, you can't clean yourself up and earn your way into a good standing with God. That would be like putting a Band-Aid on a dead body. If you're not a Christian, you need Jesus. If you're not a Christian, you need life. You need a new heart. You must be born again, Jesus declares 
in John chapter 3. So you don't need to worry about cleaning yourself up. You just need to worry about running to God, turning away from your sin and turning to God and look to him for life. If you're not a Christian, I would plead with you to do that today, to put your faith and trust and belief in Jesus, that he may give you life. For the Christians, all of this, everything that we're talking about, this is a willing and eager response to God's grace that has taken root in our lives. And if you're a Christian, this is what God calls you to and what you should long to do with joy. Be killing sin, or sin will be killing you. Abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So Peter's how-to guide is showing you that if you want to live as a faithful exile in 2023, you need to work hard at leaving your lusts. But Peter gives you one more habit, one more goal to strive for, and it's the other side of the coin as it relates to killing sin. If you're going to live as a faithful exile in 2023, the second thing you have to do is this, cling to virtue. Peter says cling to virtue because others will see your virtue and glorify God. Read verse 12 with me. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So as Christians, not only are you to abstain from sinful desires, but now Peter calls you to, to, to put on and to keep and to maintain good deeds. Cling to virtue. He says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. So he refers uh, to uh, non-Christians here as Gentiles. This is a, a term that was once applied to all non-Jewish people. Peter now applies to all unbelievers. All non-Christians are Gentiles. And he uses the word keep here. The word keep here in verse 12 is connected to Peter's urging back in verse 11. And so he calls us to, or he urges us to abstain from pe- uh, fleshly passions, passions of the flesh. And now he's urging us to maintain good conduct. To keep, to keep is to maintain something that they already have. So he's saying continue to maintain. Work hard at, ma- at maintaining honorable conduct. Conduct is what characterizes our lives. Conduct is how we act, how we behave. Conduct refers to our everyday patterns of life. Earlier in the, earlier in the letter, if you look back at 1 Peter 1.15, Peter says this, but as he who called you is holy, so you also be holy in all of your conduct. In all of your ways of living, you must be holy. And here in chapter 2, verse 12, Peter says, in all of your living, you must be honorable. Now, that's not a word we use often today. It feels like a word from the past, a, a word from a previous generation. Honorable. The NIV translates the beginning of verse 12 this way. It says, live such good lives. I think that's a fine translation, but I think it, it, it fails to capture the magnitude of what Peter is actually calling us to. The word here can be literally translated as worthy or noble or even beautiful or attractive. So by using the phrase honorable conduct, Peter calls us to live lives that are respectable. To be honorable is to live a life that is clearly marked by virtue. 
To be honorable is to live a life that is appealing and attractive. I don't have all the time and the space to to go into detail here, but if you were to read ahead into the next section, into the end of 1 Peter 3.12, Peter shows us what honorable conduct looks like within different segments of society. From 2.13 to 3.12, we see what honorable conduct looks like as faithful citizens. We see what honorable conduct looks like as faithful servants or workers, wives, husbands, and as brothers and sisters in Christ. So I'd encourage you, read beyond this chapter when you go home later today. Peter is showing us that honorable conduct should permeate every single area of our life, every nook and cranny. Our conduct should be consistent. So friend, can you say that about yourself? Can you say that you are striving to live a life that is attractive to those who don't know Jesus? Do the people around you, by God's grace, look at you and say, I want what that person has? Would your non-Christian friends call your marriage honorable and appealing? Would your non-Christian work colleagues describe your work ethic as attractive and something to be desired? Young adults, would your friends call you an honorable person? Friends, we are called to live such godly lives that even when we are maligned or mocked and made fun of because of our faith and our allegiance to Jesus, that our critics can't help but see our godly conduct and glorify him and speak well of him. Verse 12, again, Peter goes on, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What's Peter doing here? Well, really, he's describing lifestyle evangelism. And his point reflects Jesus' point on the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says this in Matthew 5.16, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works and glorify God and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I think what's so interesting here is that Peter and Jesus, they don't call us to withdraw from society. Sometimes, I've seen it in my own life, sometimes when we're pressured by culture or friends, we run the risk of error in two ways. First, the first tendency is, is to resist, to fight back, defend ourselves, and rebel against culture. The second tendency in error is to completely retreat or to take a passive stance and to assimilate to culture. And neither position reflects the biblical call. So as we know, Christians, it's not rare for us to be mocked or ridiculed as Christians, but when we're reviled, when we're mocked, when people call us names, even when we're falsely accused of being evildoers, Peter doesn't summon us to self-defense. And Peter doesn't summon us to capitulate or be passive or to assimilate. Instead, Peter summons us to good deeds. He summons us to live honorable lives. It's kind of simplifying, isn't it? At least in my mind. We're called by God to show what God's ways look like in every facet of life. In our finances, in our marriages, in our homes, in our parenting, in our singleness, in our commitments, in our speech, 
and our generosity and our hospitality and our patience and our love and our compassion and our regard for others. And what happens when we do that? What happens when we reflect honorable, respectable conduct? Well, our critics, our accusers, turn to God and glorify him. Peter says that unbelievers will glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, in full transparency, this is a little bit of a confusing statement, and commentators are all over the map on what the day of visitation actually means. To help us, in the Old Testament, when God visits mankind, it usually refers to either blessing or judgment. In the context of 1 Peter, I take the day of visitation simply to mean the day when Christ returns. Twice previously in his letter here, Peter mentions the, the future revelation of Jesus Christ. That's his second coming. And so when Jesus does respond for some, the day of Christ will mean blessing. For others, when Jesus Christ comes back at his second coming, that will mean judgment. But when Christ does respond, all people, every single man, woman, and child will glorify him. Everyone will glorify Christ. Paul says in Philippians 2, Therefore God has highly exalted him, that is Jesus, and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. On the day of visitation when Christ returns and he comes to separate once and for all the sheep and the goats, some to eternal joy and others to eternal judgment and punishment, all will glorify the Son. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every single person will glorify God. Now, we're not sure whether or not these unbelievers will glorify God in the sense that they've received salvation. But what we do know, and this is what Peter emphasizes here, that when unbelievers see your honorable and good deeds, they won't be able to help but ascribe glory to God on the day that Christ returns. So what Peter is arguing for, he argues for such a steady course of righteousness from you that even rejectors of God will have to approve of your lifestyle in the end. They can't help but see the attractive appeal and beauty in your honorable conduct, and they will glorify the God that you represent. Loved ones, your virtuous living reflects your real homeland. Your virtuous living reflects your real allegiance. Your virtuous living reflects the very fact that you are an exile just passing through on his or her way to glory to his or her promised land. Later today or this week, I hope when you're thinking ahead and planning the new year, I want you to remember Peter's how-to guide, what Peter calls us to here this morning. And if you strive with the help of the Holy Spirit who is in you, if you strive to follow the how-to guide, you will have done a good thing this year. You will have not only survived, but you will have thrived, and you will have lived as a faithful exile. 
So on this first day of a brand new year, again, you've got a fresh start, Christian. How are you going to live 2023? May God grant all of us as the giver of good gifts all the grace that we need to leave our lusts and cling to virtue. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for your word that we can open it, Lord, that your spirit grants us help and understanding. And I pray, God, we acknowledge that this is a, maybe a hard-hitting text, but it's so clear. And so I pray through the help of your spirit for all of my brothers and sisters this year that you would help us to be a church that is striving, striving to leave our lusts and cling to virtue because we love you, because we want to reflect you and your kingdom and ultimately God, we want to bring you glory, but we know that living in such a way is also for our own good. We love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.